Great. Okay, we'll get started then. Um, thanks everyone for coming. This is our second Emirate Inspire. I'm Colm Larkin. I'm part of the Emirate Board. And we have Chelsea Howe to welcome here today. Hi, Chelsea. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey. Um, thanks for having me. This is super exciting. <laughs> so um, I'm just going to get into it. So you are um, crea a creative director at EA Mobile. Um, yes. I'd just love to know how you basically ended up there. Like, how did you end up in EA Mobile? So just a little quick yeah, recap for everyone of kind of your, your game dev career. <laughs> <laughs> well, first I get to, because I am now part of EA, I get to give my EA spiel, which is that nothing I say represents EA, and it is all mine, mine, mine. Um, so how did I get to EA? Uh, I played games all my life, loved games all my life, and thought that they came fully formed from the sky. I never thought that game design was something someone did, much less get paid for, much less could make a living out of. Um, so I went into uh, writing, actually, linguistics, because I wanted to be the next Tolkien. I really loved the idea of creating worlds and um, places and experiences that could take people away and let them feel things they didn't normally feel and be in places they couldn't normally be and do things they couldn't normally do. Um, and then I got to college, and I realized that you could actually make games and, in fact, make money playing games and making games and studying games and writing about games. And I was like, that is 100% what I want to do with my life. Um, and I basically kind of took off like a rocket ship at that point. Um, it's really cool to have a goal and know what you want to do and then just be able to do it. Um, so I took every class I could find that was even remotely related to game development. Um, lots of art, animation, coding, psychology, um, music theory, digital music composition, creative writing. Um, I even took like choreography and dance because I was really interested in national, uh, natural motion um, and, and kind of AI and watching a bunch of people with their own instructions come up with something big and beautiful. Um, I I'm studied like comparative religion, basically anything that could contribute to... I'm just going to put in for a second because that's an amazing breadth of things <laughs> to study that are related to games and they all have their place. Wh which one do you think um, inspired you the most? down or is everyone else down? Oh, I think we just came back. I went down as well. Am I back? I can see you again and I can hear you. Okay. Um, I was, <laughs> I butted in, I interrupted you to say that was an interesting breadth of of uh, subjects you were studying that you, uh, all game related. And I was just about to ask, um, which one do you think uh, of those subjects has been most inspiring in actually creating games? I think the most beneficial thing was actually the I did an independent study every semester and actually got a team together. Um, and by and large, like having to work with a team and having to learn how to talk to so many different people and having to schedule something and scope something and then continue to reduce your scope <laughs> as you uh, realize that you're always inherently a very optimistic estimator. Um, and having the, the leeway, because it was in a in a learning environment to just experiment and do like vastly weird things. Um, that was probably the most beneficial thing that, that has helped me out since, was learning how to work with people and talk to people and having outlets for really testing and pushing uh, at the boundaries of what I'd seen in games. Huh. And that was all in, in college and in university? Yeah, I was, I was very, yeah. very lucky. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so by the time I graduated, um, I founded a little company with uh, someone, my, one of my uh, friends who had been in the Global Game Jam. Uh, we went to the very first Global Game Jam in 2009, and we made a prototype uh, with a few other people, and then we got actually a publishing deal on iOS. So I went out of college and founded a company, <laughs> which was crazy, and <laughs> a lot of money, and totally not worth it. Um, financially, but experientially totally worth it. Um, we made a game, we published it on my OS. Um, it's actually where I met my fiance, so that was a fantastic experience. Um, you met and your then fiance. That was all on the side. You met yeah, your fiance, fiance on iOS. <laughs> <laughs> they saw your game. <laughs> uh, yeah, he was our he was our animator for that project. Um, and that was all on the side. So I actually had a full time job out of college um, working as a producer at an accelerometer fabrication plant. So they were trying to do on PC what you could do with a Wii using accelerometers. And so I was making a bunch of little software demos for them. Um, both of those things were cool, but not the thing I wanted to do. And at that time, everyone was kind of talking about uh, this company called Zynga. And at the time, they were talking about how evil and terrible this company called Zynga was. But just the volume of people talking about it and the um, kind of like omnipresent feel, like the ubiquitous nature of Zynga made me think that that was a place where I could learn a lot. So I went to Zynga, I worked on Farmville, um, I made Facebook change their terms of service, um, which was fun and a little bit oh, terrible. Can I stop you there? Can I hear about, more about that? <laughs> yeah, As so part of Zynga, you made Facebook change their terms of service? <laughs> okay, <laughs> <Yeah>. great. <laughs> we were, so I was really interested in, um, in uh, trying to find a way to be viral that didn't feel spammy. Because um, that was like a big issue at the time. Was like, how do we how do we get eyes on things without feeling making them feel spammy? And so I created this um, this event where we made two different fan pages, one for sheep and one for cows, because we know that a lot of people like sheep and a lot of people make cows. Um, and then we encourage people through the game to either vote by friending either the the uh, cow or the sheep. Um, and we wound up getting like millions of people onto these uh, fan pages. And that's when okay, you can't do this. You can't just come up with like 80 fan pages for one game. You get one You get one fan page. Um, so <laughs> I, I am the reason that there is a rule that you can only have one fan page per game. That's pretty uh, cool. In Facebook. <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't yet uh, broken Facebook to that degree. <laughs> That's a good was, um, well, they achievement. Were, they were, yeah, they, they were watching Zynga very close at the time, so I think that was part of it. Um, yeah, so I, I worked at Zynga. I was actually only there for um, for less than a year, um, and then I joined. I went on sabbatical, so I traveled Europe for three months, and then I uh, joined uh, one of the people I'd studied for my thesis, Jane McGonigal, at her startup. Um, and so I was the the director of design on Super Better, the project there. Um, then I did a bunch of consulting, and I was running a bunch of game events um, in San Francisco. I um, became a lecturer at the California College of the Arts, um, eventually signed on to work full-time with one of the companies I was consulting for, TinyCo. Um, I released Family Guy, The Quest for Stuff, <laughs> and then um, decided to kind of step back from San Francisco, and I came to Austin, and I joined EA. Cool. That Thanks for that. I apologize. <laughs> well, you've had quite a diverse career already this is um the thing it would be hard to have kind of get through that any briefer than you did um 
So I kind of have some questions already. I've got a big page of questions here, but I'm also going to be taking questions um, for everyone listening in. Um, so questions, drop them into chat there, and uh, I'll get through them. Um, so I have some questions about your work right now in EA. So obviously you can't tell me anything um, at all, but you can kind of tell me maybe some things about like how you work. And it doesn't really have to be EA, though that is interesting to me. But you know, um, how big is your immediate team in general on a game? Um, do you work in small teams, or is it like a I, like I sometimes think of EA as a giant colossus with hundreds of people um, in yes. one giant room, like a giant hangar, all working on a game. Um, <laughs> so is that is that close to true? It's definitely true in some locations. Um, I'm actually co-located with Bioware Austin, uh, with the group from uh, Star Wars: The Old Republic, and so that is much more like just vast numbers of people. I think they were like 400 at their peak, and that's declined significantly, but there's still just a ton of people here all working on the one game, um, and it's really cool to see just that many people united around a single goal. Um, my team is much smaller, so on mobile you kind of have to be a little bit uh, more agile, so uh, we're, oh, gosh, when I first came here I had about 25 people um, working on the same project, and then for a long time I was in um, prototyping. <laughs> and so it was me and one other person locked in a room for an incredible amount of time. Um, we basically are the same person now. <laughs> and then uh, now uh, ramping up, we just kind of are adding um, adding people to that. Um, so 8, 10, 12, and then you kind of work up, um, you work up over time to kind of a, a full staff team, which depending on what company you're at can be anywhere from um, like 30 to 100, so I'm and hoping we don't get up to 100. <laughs> I'm hoping we stay closer to 30, but uh, you never so know. At 30, you still know everyone. At 100, suddenly there's people you don't know that well. Yeah, and, yeah. And 100, 400, 400 on one game, you definitely don't know everyone anymore. Can you imagine? Oh, man. Yeah, no, I can't. <laughs> it, it boggles the mind. Um, yeah. So you, you kind of start small and then kind of ramp up. How long would that be, you know, before launch? Would you ramp up for a year or, you know, the last few months? And with a free-to-play game, it's not just launch. It's, you know, launch is just step one usually. Yeah, it's upkeep, um, yeah. It's, yeah, it's <laughs> kind of long-running um, compared to other games. There's a lot more post yeah. work. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, I love having really long early development. So me in a room with one or two other people for months was actually great because it meant that we got to do um, a lot of kind of really in-depth like inquiries into the market and trends that we were seeing and doing really deep genre analysis. Um, so that was fantastic. And the more time that you have up front when it's super cheap and super cohesive because you don't have to have that overhead of communicating something to 10, 20, 30 people, um, the better. Once you get into prototype phase, it's nice to have someone to um, obviously code faster than you can. Um, I, I can code, but it's not. I'm obviously not the most efficient person at the company for coding, um, even when it's just simple prototyping. Um, though I did make a prototype this morning in Photoshop that was pretty good. <laughs> I can have to say it's terrible. Like Photoshop <laughs> can't <do> coding, <laughs> but certainly uh, fine for prototyping. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then you have your development phase, um, and I've been on teams with lots of different development phases. Um, 
but normally you kind of get to MVP as fast as you can and then you soft launch for as long as you can um, because soft launch is when you get the kind of longitudinal data and you get your first day 30 numbers and in mobile it's really not a game of like fun and initial engagement it's about what is your like how are you going to keep people engaged for a year two years three years five years um, and you really can't get data on that in most of the playtesting formats that have been used traditionally. You really have to have enough content um, and enough things for people to do that they can actually play for 30 days. And you can say, where are you finding the drop-offs? What were you doing on day 30? Do you have goals that are going to keep you satisfied for the next you know, X number of months? Um, you, so the longer really, the soft launch, the better. I guess you can't, you can't do a traditional playtesting thing where you watch someone play the game occasionally for two months, you know, that, that kind of yeah. doesn't work. Yeah, we do really some, yeah, we call around. those diary studies where we kind of get, we, we put the game on their device and we kind of see what what their behavior is over time, but it's it gets really expensive really fast um, when you're asking for like 30 days or 60 days of someone's time. Um, and it's, it's usually a lot easier to just stick it into. That's uh, super interesting. I, I didn't know that was even possible. I was kind of uh, joking there. <laughs> that, but that's, oh, yeah. that's really interesting. <laughs> um, I've got a question yeah. here related to this from Brenda. Brenda Romero, mm -hmm. being a creative director for mobile seems to be such a high pressure thing to me and ever changing. How do you keep up with the latest and more challenging? What do you do to predict what's coming? Yeah, oh man. <laughs> So those are two great questions. In terms of keeping up with the latest, um, I do a lot of just opening up my phone and seeing what the top charts are. Um, I do a game a week with the studio, so every week I pick a game that's in the top grossing um, or that's in uh, top paid or, or top free, um, and we make everyone at the studio play it uh, so that we're all kind of aware of the environment, aware of the marketplace, aware of what's coming out, um, and making sure that it's a mix of top grossing and top free and top paid so that you can see like top paid usually gets you a lot of your kind of quality best standards and a lot of your interaction best standards. They tend to be very juicy, very engaging. Um, your top free tends to be really, uh, really fun and really like the moment-to-moment -moment gameplay is just fantastic. But they can be one-offs like Flappy Bird. And then the top grossing is like, okay, this has an enduring meta and it, mon you know, it, it monetizes really, really well. Um, and so there's stuff to learn from all of those categories, and I just try to make sure that we're all constantly getting exposed from that. Then for the prediction, <laughs> oh man, there's there's several creative directors across mobile studios, and this is something that I think we all we all struggle with, and, and even beyond mobile. Um, I actually learned a lot from uh, from Jane's work with the Institute for the Future and what futurists do to try and predict trends. And their kind of golden rule is one step forward, two steps back. So if you're going to try to predict three years in the future, uh, or whenever your launch is, if you want, if you say we want to, we want to set the market at launch, then you say, okay, if we're launching in two years, let's look back at the the last kind of four to five years of market trends, and you kind of see um, what's been evolving, how games have changed. We tend to try to do it by genre because it helps. Um, it helps focus things, but then we also look at new genres. So like idle games are a genre that didn't exist. And so what do idle games tell us about what is satisfying for people and what's engaging people and what's retaining people? Because um, retention in idle games is actually really, really phenomenal. Um, idle games appeared in Steam summer sales, so that was really interesting to see. Um, and now it's kind of about endurance. What was that just, was that like a genre, like one hit wonder? 
um, or is it enduring? And even if it's not enduring, again, it still tells us something about what people need and what people enjoy. Um, and then we just kind of follow those lines to present and then look at the trend line and kind of say, okay, if idle games tell us that people really love automation because moment-to-moment -moment fun wears out super quickly and then it becomes all about optimizing and becoming better at how you spend your time, how can we take that from idle games and put that into you know, a CCG or a city builder or a um, whatever genre you're kind of looking into. And I've seen that with a few games, you know, having kind of companion apps trying to do that. Yeah. So you do some sort of management for your game from your mobile, that kind of stuff. Uh, I'm talking, yeah. you know, console games. Um, very interesting. I've got another question here from Andrew Hines. As someone who's done a lot of both, how does corporate work compare to indie work? Do you find either to be easier or better than the other? I find that if you can get to a place where you can be doing both, that is literally the best of both worlds. Um, they both satisfy very different things for me. Working at a big company, A, gives me a steady paycheck, which is fantastic. But it's also a chance to realize IP and brands that you would never get to do as an indie. And it's also a chance to touch millions and millions of people. Like, I made a feature that 32 million people played in a day on Farmville, and that's something that is phenomenal. Like, you, there is no way to get that as an indie. Um, like, uh, no way to know you're going to get that or no way to kind of um, hop into that. And that's something that's incredible. Um, like, I still think about it, and my mind's just like, what does that even mean? I don't know how to process that. How did that happen? That was amazing. Um, and you get to work with a lot more people, and you can often work with a lot kind of higher caliber people. Um, a lot of times when it's indie, there's not as much budget. It's kind of a little bit hit or miss. Um, but what indie development lets me do is play and experiment. Um, a big company is not going to be interested in doing something that's niche. But a lot of times, the niche things are where the interesting um, developments are happening. If you look at the mechanics of Twine games that are coming out, like that's actually where a lot of interesting and compelling uh, game design advances are being made. Um, and that, that would never fly um, at, a, at a corporate company. So being able to have the leeway to go to game jams and hang out with indie developers on the weekends and do kind of crazy indie things. So like I work with um, my fiance on some of his projects and we're working with Twitch, um, which is like this fantastic new phenomenon. Like again, you look at genres that didn't exist before. All of the Twitch plays, all of the audience engagement games, so that genre didn't even exist. Um, and so you get these opportunities that you wouldn't have um, elsewhere. So they both have really fantastic advantages, and I don't think I'd be happy only doing either one now that I've had the ability to kind of get, get the taste of both. Does one ever feed into the other? Like um, you mentioned Game A Week, where you... Uh, get folks in, in, in EA to all play the same game. Uh, do you ever find that something so interesting you've just spotted on a game jam or, you know, uh, Twitch plays Pokemon, say, the week that came out? Is that something where you go, everyone needs to see this, or does that happen anyway? Um, I think some of it happens anyway, but, like, um, in Austin, um, Brandon Boyer runs uh, Juegos Rancheros, and he does, every month, a kind of overview of his Don't Miss These Indie Games. And almost always I'll pick one or two of those for our next two game of the weeks um, just to like again cross-pollinate and make sure that people here are thinking about 
the possibility space. Because um, oftentimes in the corporate world, your possibility space um, just narrows because there are so many things that just aren't going to be financially viable. And I think it's important to remind our remind designers, even if we can't go out here for our project, like remember that out here exists. And you know there might be some small piece of something way out here that we actually can bring in and that can um, kind of infuse these projects that we're trying to make be very financially viable and very engaging long term, have that moment to moment jazziness um, or, or have that kind of like subversive playful uh, tone in some ways that indie games can. Very cool. Um, so this kind of related to that. If if someone wanted to make a free-to-play game, break into the free-to-play market, but without the huge investment that certainly I see the big players putting in, um, mm -hmm. do you think it's possible? And could they do it the same way? Like indie free-to-play? Yeah. So the same way indies have broken into the big, you know, are, are playing with the big boys on premium games on PC, for mm -hmm. example. Definitely right up there. The best indie games are just as you know, financially viable and interesting and critically acclaimed. Um, is that possible, do you think, in free-to-play? And then... Absolutely. If, if so, Absolutely. <laughs> what, what if someone who wants to do that? What should they do? Or yeah. what? Well, I think the, the biggest barrier to getting more creativity and innovation in free-to-play is just you say free-to-play and most of your indie developers like turn to the side and go, like, they, there's just this like gut, awful negative reaction from indie developers around free-to-play that I think is completely unnecessary. Um, a lot of it was fed by kind of predatory early practices, but if you look at the games that are in the top now, if you look at something like Game of War or something like Clash of Clans, like those are really good games and they're incredibly engaging and they're not utilizing the same kind of, um, again, like, like predatory monetization that a lot of games use um, or a lot of free-to-play games that kind of set the tone early on used. Um, and I think if more indie developers just thought about some of the really compelling challenges of free-to-play, like free-to-play is essentially designing for time. Like you're designing a game that can continue to be engaging for months and years. And that's something that most most indie developers can't can't say. Like even you look at like best of class on mobile, you look at Monument Valley, that's engaging for someone for five hours, ten hours, maybe. Um, and so there's so there's so many interesting things about how you can maintain someone's attention and let them feel like that that gratification and that um, like satisfaction for years that I think is just enchanting um, and it's an incredible design puzzle to think about how could you make Monument Valley fun and how could you draw out its engagement sustainably for for oh, five years. Yeah. So you think it's it's gonna happen? Is someone gonna take that challenge and say, "I'm gonna make a a really interesting game, it think, but it's gonna be free to play"? Yeah. I mean, I think Spry Fox is doing some really great exploration in that realm because um, they've always been free to play. But you can definitely tell looking at something like Alpha Bear. Yeah, with you their can, like, Twitter hooks and missing out. <laughs> um, but yeah, it does. It, it uses. Um, it's got really great virality. Um, it has premium purchase options, it has consumables, like it's got a lot of the standards for free-to-play, but you don't see anyone being like, oh, Spry Fox is evil. Um, and I think that's because they came to the challenge like with eyes open, and they didn't shy away from monetization, they just did it in a way that felt, um, that felt, I think, 
authentic to their brand and their studio, um, which is going to be the challenge for people coming into the space. Is it the mechanics that make money make money? How do you make them? How do you own them? And how do you realize them in a way that doesn't doesn't contradict with who you are and what you represent or what you want to represent? I think this is saying what you just said about extending the kind of uh, pleasure of a game over time. Um, I know Dan Cook from Spry Fox um, likes to say evergreen for the kind of mm -hmm. game, you know, game mechanics that don't disappear once you master them. So that's certainly the space mm -hmm. they're pushing. Yep, exactly. A um, couple more questions here. So here's one from someone in Brenda Ramiro's office. Can you talk a little bit more about your early prototyping practices? When do you decide to take it further? When do you bring in players from outside? Mm. So that's actually really interesting. So I find that prototyping for free-to-play is a lot different than prototyping for an indie game. Because again, when you're prototyping indie or you're prototyping console, that moment-to-moment -moment is so important. Um, that's, that's essentially like everyone just goes on and on about how if you have five minutes of fun, then you've got the beginnings of a game and you don't, you don't have to worry about it. You can, you can green light it because you just you build off of that core. Um, and in mobile, it's, that's not true at all. Or um, in free-to-play, sorry, that's not true at all. If you think about Flappy Bird, like, that was like, enjoyable for five minutes and <laughs> that you know, spiked I would up say and it's gone enjoy. now. Flappy Bird was <laughs> completely annoying. That's what made it good. <laughs> well, it was, it was masochistically annoying, but it, it was engaging. So it was engaging for a few minutes, and you saw all of these people who wanted to engage with it. Um, and so if you had tested it, uh, you know, people would have picked it up, and they'd be like, oh, I'm going to keep trying, oh, I'm going to keep trying, I'm going to keep trying. Um, but it was very, very short-term engagement. And in mobile, <laughs> I always feel kind of terrible when I say this, but in mobile, essentially, that moment-to-moment -moment gameplay just really doesn't matter. There are so many moment-to-moment -moment gameplay pieces that have been proven out already. Um, like that's essentially just your genre. Like you know, in a match three game, you're going to be, you know, doing this, and that's your moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. What makes Candy Crush successful where other match three games aren't is how that builds up over time and how it stretches out across time. So looking at their giant, you know, excuse me, Candyland-esque meta map looking at the way that they put your friends on it so that you want to get through that. Um, looking at Game of War's server map and seeing all of the different locations of the cities. Like that is the stuff that's going to make or break a mobile game, not the kind of moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. Um, so the meta, to, the meta game is more important in, in free-to-play, you think, than the, the core gameplay loop? Yeah, or how, or how that... So that's interesting. You use the word loop, and so I think loop is actually, to me, there's a little bit of a difference between a core loop and the kind of moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. So if you think about something like um, like some of the CCGs, so um, Brave Frontier. So if you think about Brave Frontier, if you actually look at the battle, there's an auto button. And if you watch anyone who's played Brave Frontier for more than half an hour, that auto button is always pressed. And in a lot of games, especially in console games, you'd think, oh, well, it's all about the battle. You better, you better make sure all the physics are right in your battle. You better make sure the battle is, you know, um, is super juicy and that you know, the controls match up perfectly and it's, it's really, really tight. And everyone on mobile just presses the auto button. Um, a lot of the things that we like to think of as gameplay in mobile are really just grind. 
what people like when they come into a mobile game is knowing that they're making progress towards something bigger, um, something longer term, something that's going to take them months. But every day they get that little bright experience of progress and experience of forward motion. Um, and that's what matters. So prototyping that <laughs> is really hard um, because you kind of need that initial base first. And so a lot of what we do is find like the simplest base that we can um, and then just put it in, deal with it, and then wrap some of those like progression mechanics around it um, and see sort of what sticks and how you surface goals and how you get people hooked on those goals that are going to take longer periods of time to make running through that loop um, satisfying. Does that make sense? Yeah, very, very much so. Um, this is very interesting to me as well. Um, I'm taking like loads of notes here. <laughs> um, so you know, I've I've played a lot of games, um, obviously, on all different you know consoles and stuff. Um, and playing, so you know, nowadays some free-to-play games almost don't seem like they're free-to-play. Is that something you've ever dealt mm -hmm. with? So there's a lot of games where it's very clear. You're like, oh, this is a free-to-play game. I'm going to be asked for money. Um, and that my gameplay is going to suffer if I don't pay. Sometimes I feel that. And other mm -hmm. games, um, so I actually I don't play these, but like Dota and League of Legends are often called this, that they're free to play, but not no, their fans never give out about it. Um, for me, Hearthstone on like iPad feels that way as well. I feel like I'm playing a great game and anyone who wants to pay money can, but I don't feel like I'm put out by it. But I don't see them generally on the top charts on on uh, mobile. Um, yeah. <laughs> is that yeah, are they being too nice? I mean, what's happening there? Well, there's always going to be that trade-off between um, how much efficiency paying gives you and um, how people perceive the game as like uh, coercing them right into paying. And so. On the one hand, if you get something like Game of War, like they make the money very clear. It's like, here's how much you need to pay, here's all the benefits you get from paying, you can pay or you cannot pay. Um, and I think the reason that that's so successful is because there is that delineate, like they're so upfront about it. Um, I actually um, am working with a friend of mine on like this weird side project about essentially consent and free-to-play and how when you're not upfront about the money, then you're kind of tricking or you're you're trying to again like coercing players and it part of the reason that I think there's that gut negative reaction to free to play is because early on the tone that was set was one of 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 it was non consensual. You oh, didn't opt in to say even the okay, name. I know how this works. Yeah. Even the it's, name that stuck is free to play. <laughs> I mean it's kind of a joke. It's it's free, sort of. You know, a lot of the time it's free ish. And like you said, if you're upfront about it, you're you're really saying it's free to to play, but you know buying comes with these things and that's mm -hmm. a different kind of angle than I think certainly early Facebook games it was like it's just a game play 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 it's all free it's all yeah, free yeah yeah free 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 um because free obviously was the an amazing new thing at the time you know games for free mm -hmm. that's crazy yep <laughs> yeah and I think now that as we're as as free to play players are gaining kind of literacy in the systems that's helping as well um, and people just being kind of more upfront about it and very clearly displaying the value of paying um, as opposed to it being like a, we're going to keep on hurting and hurting and hurting your experience until you pay us, um, which is, is much uh, 
feels much worse, <laughs> suffice it to say. I'm going to bump over to a question here from Ronan Pierce. Hi, I have a couple of process-related questions. With teams of 30 plus, how do you manage the dev process on a high level? Are there separate agile teams? How often does everyone touch base? Is there much remote working or do team members co-locate? Oh man, lots of questions. Um, <laughs> I really try, uh, remote is hard. Like the overhead of working remote is so hard. Um, if I have a choice, I will always opt into a fully co-located team because um, you, you can make remote work and I've worked with some phenomenal I think we've dropped again. Or maybe it's just me. Can you guys hear me? Oh, that's funny. Maybe we've just lost Chelsea for a minute. Oh, I think you're back now, Chelsea. Sorry. Oh, am I back? Yeah, you were just okay. saying uh, drop off? <laughs> you can make collocate work and you've worked with some phenomenal and then it stopped. For me, at least. Yes. I've worked with some phenomenal teams, but it's very hard. Um, then I was talking about pods. So yeah, in a, in a team of 30, definitely want to subdivide that um, into pods. Um, from what I've seen, a good group core is usually between uh, like two to eight people. So if you have 30 um, or 40 or 50 or 60, you definitely kind of subdivide that um, amongst your kind of engineers and artists. Um, I've also seen different people and do you, sorry, there. Do you do that by, game. by you know, like two to eight art people, or do you break it into kind of parts of the game with uh, mixed stuff? Or yeah, so I've seen I've seen people do both. Um, I worked in some teams that did feature pods, where a feature pod was designers, engineers, artists, kind of full stack. And then I've seen other um, groups do it. Like at Zynga, it was um, it was the design pod and the engineering pod and the art pod, um, and I feel like feature pods tend to uh, give everyone a little bit more um, autonomy and feel a little bit more invested in what they're making um, because that pod kind of owns that feature. Um, but I've also seen probably a little bit more efficacy when there's the art group and the art group knows how to do art and they're going to get you that art and they're super proud of the quality of their art and then their discipline kind of has that, that autonomy and that feeling of like team pride. Um, so I've seen both of those work very successfully. I've also seen hybrid models where there were feature pods of designers and engineers that then went to the art pod to get whatever art they needed for um, their features. So this, that's this isn't giving us ways. the answer we want, which is the which is the best way. <laughs> but that's all right. What's most important is making sure that whatever group it is has enough ownership over something to feel pride and to feel like they're making meaningful contributions to the whole game. Um, and you can you can get that kind of no matter how you divide the pie. Yeah, cool. As long as the slice is big enough, essentially. <laughs> or I guess if there's not someone, you know, ruling, overruling what the pod decides, I'm guessing. Yes. <laughs> That can be very disempowering. I think that's why I've probably seen a little bit more efficacy from dividing it into discipline. 
because then you have your uh, discipline leads, so your your art director and your tech director who can really get behind their team and fight for things. Yeah, um, yeah. Whereas often if you have a if you have a feature lead, that feature lead can get overwritten by the tech director or the art director, or there's a lot less um, kind of clarity of division. So. Yeah, that's that's a really good point. Um, I'm going to move on to another question here from Jonathan Frawley. Do you have any projects you would love to work on but have not yet had the chance? Oh man, like like games that already exist that I would love to be a part of, or Let's start with that games one. that are in my head that I haven't done. <laughs> the one game I really wanted to work on um, was Glitch. So Glitch was this phenomenal casual MMO um, out of Canada. And I joined it, and I loved it, and then Robert Haneke joined it. Yes, who then makes Slack, which is awesome. So it was crazy. It was this phenomenal game that just monetized very, very poorly, (laughs) Um, and ultimately, ultimately went under. Um, But yeah, I I loved Glitch, and then Robert Haneke joined it, and then Keita Takahashi joined it, and I was like, oh, I would just so love to be a part of this. Um, And then they went under, so it was probably a good thing I didn't. But um, the the vision for that game was just so powerful and the the emotions and the experience that you got out of a social MMO, um, like a casual MMO, were were unlike anything I'd ever felt before. I think MapleStory is kind of the only thing we can point at and be like, look, a casual MMO that did really well. Um, and even then, like, calling it casual is a little bit misleading. Um, but yeah, Glitch was absolutely phenomenal. Mirror's Edge, I love Mirror's Edge. I love it so much. Uh, pretty much any Bioware game. So now I, I work with the Bioware folks right down the hall, and I have to like. Is that do my why you joined the Because I'm like. Is that why you joined the AMO? You could be near them. Yeah, but um, I don't know if I could do console development at this point. It's such a there's such a lag time between effort and return on effort. Um, I'm used to being able to kind of launch a new game every year and get that. Uh, feedback loop closed and going for so long without the feedback of seeing people play your game I think would just be very very difficult very interesting um, dream project that you'd love to make and any brand you'd love to work with oh man you're breaking up can you hear me oh sorry I can hear you maybe I despaired can you hear me again Yes, I can hear Oh, great. Sorry, I was just saying any dream project you've never got to work on, like a dream brand you'd love to make a game for? So I always say Cirque du Soleil. Um, I'm an experienced designer, and I think in terms of experience design, there's nothing more enchanting than going on to a Cirque du Soleil show, except for possibly some of the Disney experiences. Um, But in terms of experience design, I think those two groups do it just so incredibly well. Um, and I'm also more and more intrigued in how play is going to seep out of these little self-contained devices and into our kind of Internet of Things world. And I think that by looking at, at groups that are doing interactive theater um, and and interactive experiences, uh, you can just learn so much. So I'd love to... <laughs> yeah, very interesting. Okay, I'm going to do another question here from... Evan White, what advice would you give to someone entering the industry in 2016, such as areas worth aiming for? Oh man, okay, so if you want a job, (laughs) like you want job security, then go into engineering, um, doing technical art, doing UI art, um, doing UX. Uh, UX is something that's gaining a lot of traction in mobile. 
um, that hasn't been a part of games, um, and then engineering. And those are going to be your, your job security uh, jobs. <laughs> in terms of making an impression and getting in regardless of job, just make games. Like I know that's what everyone says, but that's because it's, it's so painfully true. When people come in with a game that they've made, it's like you almost kind of discard anyone who hasn't um, because it's so important to get that experience of working with other people and of making the systems and of doing something from start to finish. A lot of people are like, oh, I'm going to make a game. It's going to be so easy. And then six months later, you're like <laughs> just flabbergasted. Um, and that's a really vital experience for people to have, I think. Um, let's see. And that's, play by games, the way, also my games. advice for anyone, mm -hmm. just to make games. I, I have the same advice. <laughs> um, but, and specifically, let's say there's someone who wants to get into game design. Game design. Um, understand how to play games with a critical eye um, and understand all of the biases that you have as a player. Um, one of the things that I still run into with designers all the time is that they don't know how to articulate engagement and they don't know how to articulate motivation and they don't know how to articulate what makes people have fun. They don't know how to articulate fun. I think fun is like a demon word. Um, but there is so much knowledge and vocabulary that is out there in the world now to talk about types of fun, types of motivation, human psychology and cognitive science. Um, and if I run into a designer who's like, it should be this way because I think that's fun. It's like, you are down here. <laughs> you need to be up here. Um, they can say, this should be it because it's going to appeal to people who have who are motivated by collection and completion. Or this should be in here because it's going to appeal to people who are motivated by min-maxing and gaining efficiency. Or this should be in here because it's going to appeal to the people who are compelled by storytelling and narrative and drama. Um, you should be able to break down why the game that you hate most is successful. Um, what need is it fulfilling? What motivation is it keyed into? How is, what, who is it engaging and why? Um, and being able to, to see through the lenses of all of these different people who are motivated by vastly different things. Great answer. I really like that. Um, I need to do a lot more of that myself. I usually am very instinctual rather than, um, I don't know. Um, it's hard. It's yeah, so yeah. hard like to play something that is painful, like that drives you up a wall, and then to like force yourself to be like, okay, there is someone who loves this. What are they getting out of it? <laughs> it's very hard. I've got another question here. This one's from Elaine. What are the biggest yeah. game design mistakes that you've made and learned most from? Oh, man. I mean, there's overscoping, which is just constant. Um, so, all right, here's here's a fun one. Um, this is kind of about the difference. Like, I, I do a lot of design for big IP, and I really love designing for IP. A lot of designers are like, no, I want to make my own game. I don't want to have to work with brands. And I'm like, no, brands are fantastic. Um, but one of the things that I did early on was I really confused experience for content. So using the Family Guy game as an example, um, we looked at Family Guy and we were like, what makes Family Guy Family Guy? And one of the things that happens a lot in Family Guy is that there are these big fights between Peter and the giant chicken. And so I was like, great, let's, let's have a fighting mechanic in our game. Um, and so we made out, we built out this kind of like RPG battler thing. <laughs> and there is 
a huge, huge, huge difference between the experience of watching violence and the experience of committing violence. So when you are Peter and you're punching things, that is so different than the experience of watching Peter beat up a chicken and the kind of hilarity of jokes and the fact that all of the fighting in um, the show is beautifully authored and is usually part of some kind of Rube Goldberg imagination um, versus the grindiness and the repetitiveness of like a battling game. And so I think that was kind of the biggest, like the most eye-opening thing was that difference between the content of a brand is very, very different than the experience that people have of a brand. Um, that how was a great do, lesson. <laughs> how, how do you build that in your head when you're examining a brand? How do you, and so you'd see things in the content, say in Family Guy, and you mm -hmm. think fights, but how do you translate that instead of literally what they are and try and emulate someone doing that in the game into what people are feeling and why they like it? I mean, how, how do you make that jump? What helps? Yeah, so then it was like, yeah, so then it was like, what do, what do people like about the fight scenes? So there's a lot of really hilarious animations. So we made sure that part of the game was about watching these really hilarious animations. Uh, we knew that part of it was kind of the fact that it always kept on going a little bit farther than you felt it should. Um, so we have dialogues in the game that keep on going a little bit farther than you think that they should. Um, we knew that part of it was just the complete unfeasibility of that situation. Um, and so we made sure to put some little fourth wall breaking, completely infeasible nods um, into our game um, to draw specifically from, from that fight. But kind of overall we stepped back and looked at the experience of Family Guy is all about kind of edgy, inappropriate humor, um, and 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 laughter. So people who love to laugh, and it's easy. So <laughs> there's nothing you have to think about. Um, you can multitask while you're watching Family Guy. You can have Family Guy on in the background. It's really at its heart incredibly accessible, um, edgy laughter. And so a lot of it was, okay, how do you make people laugh in a video game? And unfortunately, um, laughter is hard to do systemically. So a lot of this was kind of accepting, okay, if this is a brand about humor, it's going to have to be dependent on the narrative. So whenever you have dependencies on content, that's always really scary in free-to-play because content is expensive and content is not sustainable. Um, if, if, if people are dependent on content for their engagement, that means your dev team is going to be doing a whole lot of work, um, as opposed to finding a systemic answer or a social answer that lets an algorithm create content for people, or lets, ideally, other people create content for people. If you think about Clash of Clans, part of the reason it's so successful is because every single person who plays is a level designer for every other person. Um, so you, you have millions of level designers helping make content for Clash of Clans that the developers then don't have to make. Um, and no so one's told to know, make anything. You know, <laughs> yeah, no, you don't start the game by making a level for someone. You just play, and you, know, you happen yeah. to be making levels for people. That's really cool. Yeah. So yeah, all of that stuff was kind of floating around in my head early on. Um, yeah. That's really interesting. Um, I'm gonna got a question here from John Hannafin. I'm interested in what you said about mobile gamers wanting games that they can progress in as opposed to moment-to-moment -moment gameplay. 
why do you think this is and what are some of the other game design considerations when designing for mobile versus other platforms? Sure. So, so the first one is why, why is there this need for progress more so than gameplay? Um, I think part of it is because when we, when we say the word gameplay, we think about usually challenge and skill um, and, and kind of twitch things or memory things or puzzle solving or stuff that actually is a pretty high either cognitive or physical load. And if you think about the context in which most people use their mobile devices, they are not in a place where they can have a high cognitive or physical load on them. They're usually um, sitting on the toilet, uh, sitting in a uh, transport vehicle, uh, watching TV or having some other screen entertain them while they're entertaining themselves. Um, they are waiting in a line. Um, all of these things are not full bandwidth experiences. And so what people want, essentially, and what we're seeing in mobile games, is that people want the highest value and gratification and satisfaction for the least amount of time, attention, and effort. Um, and when you think about that, that's why it kind of makes sense that if I can come back in and press three buttons and feel like I'm making awesome progress towards this big goal, I've pressed three buttons. Like that's an incredibly low amount of effort. And yet I've gotten this feeling of progress. Um, and progress is one of those like deeply satisfying universal human needs. Um, there's a lot of kind of experience frameworks. There's um, PERMA, which I really love. There's self-determination theory. There's flow. There's enchantment. S study those, and you'll find them everywhere. You'll find them in the games you make. You'll find them in the world that you live in. You'll start to get much more frustrated by politics, which is the one downside. <laughs> um, but that's uh, that's been really helpful, is understanding the psychology behind progress and competence and achievement um, and trying to give that to people in three button taps or less. <laughs> So I guess that's why you were looking at idle games. So they seem to only give you that sense of progress when all the other bits are taken away. It's 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 free progress. It's essentially free progress that gets rid of any moment-to-moment -moment gameplay whatsoever and makes it all about um, min-maxing and figuring out how to utilize your time. Every time you come back, you get reward, you get progress. It's free. And you really don't even feel the opportunity cost unless you do the math. And then if you do the math, you can immediately action it. So there's like no lose state. There's no fail state. There's no I'm falling behind. Um, it's all just levels of progress. Very powerful. Very interesting. <laughs> Very cool, yeah. I, I often brought up uh, idle RPGs as an example why um, in the last game we made that, that um, the metagame didn't matter. Um, mm. if we cracked the kind of base loop that you ran a quest, the metagame would just be a long kind of unlock thing. Lots of quests, lots of unlocking. Because I could see these really cool games that were just that, that were just that with no gameplay. And they, you know, but they you are be, fun. Like, how, how does that build up over time? Like if you look at something like Clicker Heroes, so first you have your heroes, then you get to the reset, right? And so that first path through takes about two or three days. Um, and there there is a threshold for novelty. Like people need novelty. Um, so you get to that three days, you've, you've leveled up all your heroes, you get to that first reset, and then you're like, oh my gosh, like the possibility space of this idle game just exploded. Um, then you start collecting hero souls, or whatever the, um, the refresh, reset currency is. Then over time, clicker heroes introduce things like the 
meta reset currency. So you start getting these um, ancients, which are essentially the meta level heroes. And then they started putting in, like, there is a threshold for novelty. You will run out of novelty eventually, even if your curve is going like this. Your curve kind of needs to, like, go like that. Um, sorry, I should articulate what I just gestured for the recording. You can't just have an exponential curve. You need to have these moments of excitement, these kind of peaks and valleys. And by adding new features, that's what Clicker Heroes was able to do. So while there is such thing as a quote-unquote pure idle RPG, you still wouldn't see the long-term retention from that that you see from something like Clicker Heroes, which has more metagame structure and more feature unlock and more introduction of novelty over time. Very interesting. Um, I'm going to do one last question from Elaine. Um, what is your process for balancing a free-to-play game? Give it to someone who can do spreadsheets much better than I can. Uh, I know my strengths, and, and tuning and balancing is not one of them. I usually set um, goals. So I say, we want to launch with this much content, X characters or buildings or monsters, <laughs> and... I want the unlock to look like this and kind of get get reduced over time, but then having those dips in between buildings or characters kind of fill in with other mechanics. And I kind of hand that off as the goal state for what the tuning should accomplish. And then usually either a PM or an analyst or a really hardcore systems designer goes and makes sure that there's a curve that kind of fits those uh, milestones. And then we go into soft launch and we test it. <laughs> and then, so testing is, is a really, you know, testing and analytics, a huge part of, of free-to-play. So even the fact that you say soft launch to some other game mm -hmm. designers, that won't make sense. So soft launch is where you launch in a smaller territory, often, say, New Zealand, mm -hmm. and you run there for a month or two, and you, you, you're gathering metrics and you're testing things, and you try different alternatives versus, uh, alternative parts of your game and balance and tweak things until you're happy and then you launch worldwide. So even that is live, very right? different. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's the live game. So if you, if you mess up your currency, like, it's gone forever. Like, you, you can't fix that. You get one shot. And so that's, yeah, that's part of the reason soft launch is so vital and why you're seeing more and more people soft launch for six months, nine months, a year to get it right. Which is a long time. But it's it's about getting it right before you launch. And so what are, you, what are, you, what are the most important things you do, once, say, when you soft launch before you launch? A lot of it's tuning. Like, so I, I told you kind of the goals that I set for tuning and balancing. What if people are getting those peaks and valleys, but they're getting them at twice the rate that I thought they would? That's very bad. Uh, and what if at the rate, so let's say we, we add more grinding in between those. What if then it's no longer satisfying? We have to figure out, shoot, like, do we need to make 50 more monsters before this goes live in order to fill in some of those gaps? If we put in 50 more monsters, that means that our regular content updates are going to go from 10 monsters to 20 monsters. At that point, our art team needs to essentially be doubled. Like, is does that mean that our our financial target has to go up? Like, those are all very important questions. Um, and getting that kind of that content cadence um, and understanding that rate of content consumption for me is probably the most important thing that soft launch is for, and making sure that you can sustain that nice. Um, dips and accelerating dips and valleys um, engagement uh, pattern over time. So when do you think you personally are busier on a, uh, on a game? Before soft launch or after soft launch? 
before production and during soft launch. <laughs> okay. So uh, it's kind of like extended production with a happy team of beta testers, basically. That's yeah. how, some, sometimes how I think about it. Yeah. Cool. Definitely. Okay, I'm, I'm going to stop blathering on here. Um, we've kept you for ages. So um, thanks thanks so much for, for coming on and talk to, talking to us all. Um, I only got through about half my questions. Um, I think we could have you here every week. We'd all be learning a lot. Um, thank you so much for, for giving up your time and, and talking to us. Um, yeah, thank you, guys. This was super fun. <laughs> cheers. Thanks. Um, so, yeah, we'll, we'll be putting, putting the audio up on YouTube anyway. I'll, I'll share that with you. Uh, everyone says thanks in the chat. Yay. Thanks, guys. <laughs> have a great night. <laughs> Take care. Thanks so much. Awesome. Bye.